You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast, and I have Dr. Thomas Crowther. Uh, he's a professor and lab founder of Crowther Lab, and we're going to talk about um, Australia's initiative to plant a billion trees to fight climate change. So, Tom, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very good. So, tell me about the uh, you know the initiative and your work. How did you uh, you know come across this idea? Is it an existing idea that you've glommed onto, or was it yours? Well, I think the idea of global restoration to to fight climate change is not a particularly new one. You know, people have known that trees have been a great carbon capturing tool for for centuries, really. Um, the The issue is that we've not really had a good handle on on the scale of global ecosystems, so we've not really known how big a tool they are in the fight against climate change. Um, and so it's really, as my career in ecology has developed, we've, 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 it, I've been fortunate enough that it's happened at a time when big data analytics and machine learning are, are available to us. And so we've really made the most of that. And I think it's only in the last six months or so, we've, we've started to really understand the scale of the global forest system and show that actually, if we were to restore ecosystems around the world, it's not just one of the solutions to fight climate change. It's undoubtedly the best solution that we have at our disposal. When you say restore ecosystems, what, what's involved there? I mean, that could be a, a gigantic, gigantic endeavor or it could be one part of an ecosystem such as trees. Yeah, I mean, trees are a classic example because it's such a, a, such a tangible and visible um, solution. You know, individual people can plant individual trees and they grow into grow to form forests that support thousands of other species. So tree planting is a, a classic example, but really restoration in different parts of the world can mean all sorts of things. It could just mean taking the sheep off that land and allowing those the natural vegeta- vegetation to come back. Or it could mean restoring the soils and putting some uh, maybe some biochar or some compost on those soils to allow them to re- regain a healthy system that would allow plants to grow. So it's it's really just all of the approaches that would allow you what, that would allow ecosystems to be restored to their natural state. Well, I mean, again, there's reasons why different ecosystems were altered or destroyed. So, I mean, in the scheme of things, what's the focus of uh, of your lab? Or is it just look for ecosystems, uh, figure out unique ways or, sorry, specific ways to rehab each of them and set up projects to do it? Or, I mean, what's the methodology? Yeah, so... As you say, there's a range of different threats on ecosystems, you know, and, and these can be for all sorts of reasons that are incredibly valuable to humans, like agriculture or urban land. But we're focusing on the areas that are sort of outside of those lands that are so necessary for human survival. 
And outside of those areas, there can be a range of reasons that that lands have become degraded. And what we're finding is that the scale of those lands is way bigger than we previously expected. And so our research aims to get a sort of holistic perspective of those ecosystems around the world so that we can say, right, in this part of the world, you want to restore the soil to promote plant growth. In these parts of the world, you want to be planting trees to get the rapid restoration of forests. And in these parts of the world, you just want to take those sheep off so that restoration can, can progress at its normal rate. And essentially, by having that ecological understanding of the world's ecosystems, we can guide targeted restoration to be effective. So what are some examples of places you've looked at? What was the suggestion? Was anything implemented, you know, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. So, we, I mean, again, all of our models are global scale. So they, they're initially valuable for setting global scale targets. And that means things like the UN's Billion Tree Campaign, was a really valuable target to restore a billion trees. And when we showed that actually that there's a three, there's three trillion trees on the planet, they realized that the scale of that impact wasn't what they wanted to have their biggest impact. So it's now the trillion tree campaign. So it's useful for setting global scale targets. It's also useful for, because we generate really high resolution maps, this information is also important for local scale targets. So we work with a, a group of restoration projects in Costa Rica one of which had been focusing on restoring certain types of tree species. And those certain types of tree species don't grow well in tropical soils because they're not used to the uh, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi that, that dominate those soils. But when we, when we showed them this information and we showed them the types of microbes that exist in those parts of the world, they started, they, they, they've changed and they're, they're planting different types of species that grow well with those types of fungi and they're having far greater success in their planting efforts. So the target is really to guide global scale, national scale, and even local scale restoration efforts. Oh, I mean, it seems like all would happen at the local scale first. You know, the national or the global, well, the national scale could force it maybe to get done, but uh, it affects people, at least in their opinion, first locally, then maybe nationally. But uh, globally, I don't know, then it seems like you have conflicting interests. And, you know, why would this country support that country to do this? and plant trees when they don't feel like it affects them, or they don't even know that it might affect them. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of politics around the global scale decisions, but at least having the most informed science can help them to have informed goals, like this: the billion tree campaign is now the trillion tree campaign. And, and since our initial research, you know, they were aiming to plant a billion trees, but since we showed them how much more is necessary, they've already restored 17 billion trees, and uh, it's a great step in the right direction. But as you say, yeah, really the biggest impact of our research is to guide those local on-the-ground restoration projects. We want people around the world being able to zoom in on the map on their phone, look in and go, oh, there's, you know, this my little garden or, or this field could support loads of trees. These are the types of trees that would be there. These are the soils that could support those trees. Okay, so cool, I could plant some trees here or I could restore some soils there. That's how we'll have the biggest impact. Well, I would think there needs to be a lot more education. I mean, you know, a lot of people would say, well, okay, we could plant trees. They look nice. Uh, I've heard that, you know, it helps uh, cycle more carbon dioxide or create more oxygen for me. But I'm sure there's many more implications to that. Or doing other yeah. things to restore ecosystems, you know, or uh, this uh, this area that would have forests that's, you know, it's in a semicircle around the town I live in, but it's not in the town. How's that going to help me? Maybe they don't right. realize that it would help them. I mean, there's there's just a lot of education. I can see each situation needs to educate the nation that it's in and the local people. So how, how is that carried out? 
No, that's very true. So we uh, are interested in the ecological status of systems. So we try to get that really unified information that tells you about the, the ecology of what, what exists there and what can exist in that specific part of the world so that you can make informed ecological decisions. But of course, when it comes to actually implementing those decisions, you need teams of people working on the ground. And there's there's lots of restoration organizations that are working in all countries countries around the world. And that Billion Tree campaign that they're launching in Australia is a really good example where they're connecting with local land managers and landowners to make the right decisions in those restoration projects. So, you know, what are some examples of right decisions versus, uh, you know, good intention but wrong decisions in a restoration project? So there's plenty of examples of restoration gone wrong. I mean, not just in tree restoration. I, I think the most powerful example I've ever heard of is in uh, in China in, in the 1950s, I think it was, in the um, in response to the Great Chinese Famine, there was uh, the Chinese government saw sparrows as being a threat because they eat a lot of grain. So there was a huge sparrow uh, cull. Literally, people around the whole nation were destroying sparrows to try and prevent the the feeding on these uh, on their grain. But in the absence of sparrows, insect populations exploded and they decimated the crops. Being and this was one of the contributing factors that led to the worsening of the Great Chinese Famine that killed I don't know how many millions of people. Um, so you know, managing ecosystems wrong can be devastating, and it's happened loads of times with tree restoration too. You know, there's like the Chinese government has done amazing work restoring forests across the across the country, but by indiscriminately planting in some in some areas, the soil is very sandy or very dry and doesn't have the nutrients to support trees. And then when those trees die, they can actually degrade the degrade those ecosystems further, leading to losses of carbon into the into the atmosphere. In other places, the restoration of a very dark forests has actually increased the world's um, albedo. So we we, we the, the Earth's surface is darker and it traps more more of the sun's energy and actually warms the planet. So restoration can be wrong in, in many different ways, all the way down to that local scale when you're planting exomycorrhizal trees in an arbuscular mycorrhizal soil. You need to know which types of fungi can support your can support your trees in which area. Huh. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated than I thought. Wow. Right. <laughs> so what is the... Uh... So what is your support? Is your support the uh, the knowledge of the interplay of ecosystems and what should be put where? Yeah. Uh, in, so, you know, including weather patterns or, I mean, other vast amounts of data or, you know, where's your strength in all this? Yeah, our strength is that we are a sort of single location where we bring together the full holistic sort of ecological status of the system. There's a lot of researchers around the world working on, you know, on, on, on soil microbes or soil bacteria or trees or something else whereas w what we're providing is a platform where we we bring all of that information together so you understand the types of fungi but how that but also the types of soils that support those correct types of fungi and how you would manage those soils in in each of the different areas so ultimately people restoration projects or, or individuals on the ground can can open our apps and simply look zoom into their area of interest and go right this is how much soil carbon there is there this is how much carbon there could be there and these are the types of trees that I could restore there, in, uh, and these are the best seasons in which they grow, or something like that. They can make all the sort of ecologically informed decisions they would need to have a greater chance of restora restoration success. Well, who who tends to use your data then? Is it like local municipalities? Is it you know large governments? Is it all of them? Do they have different? I mean, what, well, I would think they would have a different intents. You know, when they do want to restore an area or change it, 
Yeah, so we, we've honestly, the, the data is being used, obviously, by international restoration projects like the, the Bond Challenge or the Trillion Tree Campaign. These are sort of UN initiatives to get countries engaged. It's also used by countries to set their restoration targets. In the Bond Challenge, all the countries around the world have set targets to say how much they will restore. And so those countries, we, our research is, is allowing them to assess whether those restoration targets are reasonable and, and, and identify which, area, which parts of those countries they should focus their efforts to have the, the most success. But then, yeah, the, the vast majority of users are people on the ground. People have predominantly heard of us through the Trillion Tree Campaign, and there's thousands of organizations all around the world planting trees, and that ranges from just an individual person planting in their field to, you know, big organizations with, with hundreds of people planting trees for 30 cents a, 30 cents a tree. Um, but they use that ecological information to try and improve the success of those restoration efforts. And it seems like simply having that, you know, people who are connected to the, to the land, people doing these restoration projects, they know what, they know that they need to understand the ecological status. They know they need to understand which types of trees, but that doesn't mean they automatically know those, that, that information at every location. And by providing that information, they have then the tools that they need to be more successful. With the Trillion Tree campaign, I mean, there's a big lag. I would think between planting the tree and then having any effect. So Correct. What's the yeah. typical lag there? And, you know, how do you temper people's uh, impatience? You know, well, we planted all these trees, but uh, all right, well, it's going to be years before anything happens. Yeah, it's true. The, the effect of restoration is it's most successful after a few decades of growth when those trees have sort of captured and stored a huge amount of carbon. Um, but in the process, as they're, when they're tiny little saplings that store almost nothing, they are still sucking up huge amounts of carbon on an annual basis. So even though they're not huge sinks at that point, they're still absorbing CO2 at a very rapid rate. And as soon as restoration starts, that, that carbon capture begins. Uh, and the nice thing is, as those forests grow older and older, their carbon capture potential increases and, and increases. It's sort of like money in the bank here. It, you know, the... While the input rate starts to slow down, the, the size of the, that bank account increases and increases. And it's sort of uh, the more we have stored in those terrestrial ecosystems, the more we've got drawn out of the atmosphere. Well, that's just one effect. What about other effects? You know, the return of uh, uh, the repopulation of certain creatures, you know, amongst the trees and the forest, uh, a change in the soil structure, a change in the albedo of that area, the wind patterns due to the trees. I mean... Uh, rainfall alteration and retention by the land. I mean, all those things. You're very right. The, the impact of forest is certainly not just for carbon capture. The values pervade everything that that impacts our climate and our atmosphere and our and our and our well-being. So, forests provide food and resources. They also provide air quality and uh, and and yeah, they have a strong impact on the albedo of the land. They determine the um, the weather patterns, they influence the amount of atmospheric moisture that, that humans um, take advantage of. There's huge numbers of services that are provided by ecosystems. Personally, my, my the reason I got involved is because I'm obsessed with biodiversity. I want, I think the most sort of magical thing on our planet is the existence of life. And, it, and even scientists today have no explanation for how life even arose, let alone diversified across every single ecosystem. And preserving that is, is, I think, something something that I'd love to, to do in my life. And the reason I've gotten into climate change research 
is because I've realized that climate change is one of the greatest threats that we have against that biodiversity. So for me, it's a, it's a win-win-win, really. The, you know, the best strategy we have to offset climate change is also the best strategy that we have to restore and preserve biodiversity. Okay. What are some of the, um, the factors that make restorations work well versus not, you know, get people involved versus not? Um, I think, in my opinion, it's, it's often that people have the best intentions. People really want to engage. And, and, and when, once, they, once they begin getting involved in a project like this, it's so easy for people to get hooked. Once you've planted your first tree, you start feeling good about your day and you feel like recycling. And then you feel better about your day and then you plant another tree. And it's sort of a positive feedback. I think the, the problems that get in the way of those feedbacks are when those trees don't don't survive and that's often because of a limited ecological knowledge of the system it's if you've restored the wrong species of tree or if you've restored them in soils that can't yet support them and those trees die that can really you know put a blockage in the way of those positive feedbacks and i think if we can provide people with that ecological information that they can have to make the right decisions hopefully more and more people will get involved in the fight Interesting. Yeah, I was in um, Iceland at the beginning of this year, and they talked about how Iceland had, uh, I mean, tremendous tree cover. And then over the, you know, over the years, the hundreds of years, most of the trees are gone, and they're trying to replant them. But it's just such a, a short season in which the uh, the trees can grow and you know literally take root and, and gain a foothold that it's been very tough to uh, to restore them. As an example. Yes, I mean that is. A perfect example of of where restoration can be so challenging, and it can it, it can lead people to sort of give up earlier than they need to. And there there are ways of restoring trees in in regions with very slow growing cycles. But yeah, as you say, that the success rates are often higher in in warmer climates or soils that can can be more fertile to support trees. And knowing that kind of information is is so valuable before you start a restoration project. And I'm sure there's scientists that have studied um, the ecosystems created by cities or human developments. Um, any insights there as to what uh, what human developments have done, you know, to local well, ecosystems when they've when they've really you know when they're really well established? I mean, yeah, there's there's many species, including everything from microbes and bacteria all the way up to birds and tigers and all sorts of things, have. Uh, have actually benefited from from human development. Many species have become accustomed to interacting with humans or benefiting from a lot of the uh, human activities. But the problem is that the vast, 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 vast majority have not. And we know that in we know that the strongest predictor of biodiversity patterns now on the globe is proximity to humans and uh, and human development. The more human development there is, the 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 smaller the amount of natural vegetation there is and the smaller amount of habitats there are for, for other species to coexist. So while obviously I wouldn't, um, I'm supportive of, of humans having cities and developing their land, it is an unfortunate byproduct of our activity that biodiversity generally loses out. Mm, true. And the, um, the example you gave of the sparrows and then the bugs coming and you know, causing far yeah. greater havoc, it was interesting because it's unexpected. So what other unexpected uh, or surprising insights have you had from the work that you do? Well, I mean, again, from projects that I've not been involved with, there, there are thousands of examples. Like in um, in, in Africa, um, they removed, I think, again, in the 1990s, this was maybe, or maybe it was earlier, 
they um what was the guy's name um so essentially in order to to reduce desertification in africa um that the sort of park managers and land managers decided to to cull african elephants because they thought that elephants i mean elephants do uh degrade soils and, and you know they they dig up soil and they and they uh, move it around and they um brush it around and 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 they thought that the presence of elephants was contributing to ecosystem decline but what they found is actually when they culled thousands of elephants desertification rates drastically increased and that's because elephants are a really key ecosystem engineer they dig holes that provide water and nutrients for plants and other animals and once those plants set in then other animals can be supported and that sort of increases the spread of grasses and 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 biodiversity when you lose those elephants other biodiversity is lost and that leads to ecosystem degradation biodiversity is almost always the core of of ecosystem health when you have diverse systems nutrients can be retained carbon can be retained and then ecosystem and then further plant growth can be supported and and those ecosystems then provide all of the services that humans need to to survive and prosper so really regulating our climate is is a is a is a simple reason to get involved with restoration but all of the thousands of other ecosystem services that ecosystems provide all come from having a healthy diverse system so what what uh, countries in the world, you know, not to shame them or anything, what areas are really in the most trouble and need the most help to uh, restore their ecosystems? Well, to be honest, the what we're finding is that the the scale of of land degradation is not incredibly geographically located. We we find degradation all across the world. So obviously, the greatest deforestation rates and the greatest land degradation rates that we get at the moment are in the tropics. Where, uh, where countries are developing and taking, making most of their natural resources. We're seeing huge deforestation rates in the tropics. But we also see that there's a really clear signal that, that northern hemisphere countries need to contribute. Essentially, Europe, for example, used to be one enormous forest, and now it's almost sparse. There's, there's, nothing, that, there's nothing left. The, there's huge maps of land that are available for restoration in, in our northern parts of the world. And essentially, it's, a, it's a, a really simple vision that everyone, wherever you are, people can get involved in this. Is there a way to uh, plant trees en masse, you know, by dropping seeds from, uh, you know, planes? Or, you know, what's the fastest way to, to really jumpstart this process in a given area? Well, as I say, that, that's, that's where you need the ecological knowledge. If, if, if the, the soils in that region are, are capable of supporting rapid plant growth and their uh, and, and they're able to support those seeds then literally yes yeah, seeds can be planted on mass in many other cases it could just be you know put a fence around that land stop the deer grazing there or stop the sheep grazing there and trees will restore really rapidly but often the i genuinely find that some of the best it sounds so simple but just getting human beings planting saplings can be the best thing not just for the speed because a sapling is already past those initial phases where the where the plant is very vulnerable to to drought or disease. A sapling's also it needs to be planted by someone, and and that process of planting gets people engaged. And when one person gets engaged, they tell other people, and then they have a lovely weekend. And then they tell other people, and like the the sort of the positivity of of human engagement is ex- extremely powerful when it comes to to forest restoration. As I say, this 
since the billion tree campaign has been converted to the trillion tree campaign a few years ago because of our global research, that information has spurred them on and they're aiming so much higher. It's, there's 70,000 children in this organization and they've already restored 17 billion trees. If such a small number of people can do so much, it's incredible to think what all of us, you know, interested bystanders might, might be able to do. If you think that all the 1.5 million people just marched for climate change around the world in all the cities around the world, if they all planted 100 trees, we'd be well under, well on our way to, to sort of achieving global scale restoration. Yeah, one idea I had is, um, you know, when you plant a sapling, is you'd, you'd also plant maybe a tiny little, uh, you know, passive transmitter with it, so that you know, if, if you know, John Smith plants a tree, uh, he could come back there and literally identify the tree that he or she planted. You know, years later, it might be a cool way to get uh, people invested in it more than just planting and moving on. I think that would be really cool. I mean, there are initiatives that do things like that where you can. You know, you can you can follow your tree. There's apps that allow you to follow the growth of your individual trees around the world, and there's different people with different approaches. But I do agree. I I think that that and ideas like it are a really good way to get people connected to that tree. And when you feel it's it's like anything. Once you've until you've like opened your mind to it and and become connected to it, you don't really care. But then once you've planted a tree, you've, it's amazing how, how people feel like connected to that ecosystem, and you'll you'll end up doing more positive things for ecosystems elsewhere. It, it's, it's a really sort of addictive thing. So what do uh, models seem to indicate right now? Are we uh, at a, still at a tremendous net loss of ecosystems or are we, has it slowed? Are we building no. more than we're losing? Yeah, right now we're still losing more than, we, than we're gaining. There are large areas of restoration around uh, India and China. There's great restoration efforts going on. A lot of regreening happening there. We're also seeing increased growth of plants in the high latitudes. Um, in the, you know, the boreal forest where it, it is sort of spreading up into the tundra. But we're still seeing so much devastation of forests in mid and low latitudes, like the tropics, that it's far outweighing the the small amount of regreening that's that's happening in other areas. So yeah, unfortunately, we're still on a negative trend. But with increased government um, Hopefully, the science, once once politicians uh, and invested people see, can see and understand the, the, the simple science of it, they'll start, we'll start to see that trend going the other way. So is the, um, is the regreening happening in the higher latitudes and the deforestation is happening in the lower? I mean, I would think that over years and years, that'll shift where, you know, the green areas are on Earth. No, at the moment the greening is happening because climate change is making the planet warmer, and so where it was previously too cold for trees to grow, they're now increasingly able to grow. But it's happening obviously a very 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 slow rate, and those trees are very small and very sparse, and they're not the the trees that are supporting the huge biodiversity that we get in the tropics. The the tropical deforestation is caused by all sorts of socioeconomic situations, including just countries wanting to make the most of their natural resources. You know, it's, it's hard for us to to criticize that because in all of the Western countries, we we decimated our forests years ago and we used all of those products to become pros- prosperous. What we need to do is incentivize those countries to now use other resources or, or, or find other approaches to be sustainable and to be um, sort of prosperous as they develop. And how... 
again, trees take uh, years really to get anywhere, but other specialized tree farms that can, uh, you know, grow them a lot faster than normal. Does that help in this uh, battle? Yes. In many parts, many cities around the world, there are tree farms or seed banks where where there are specialists that just grow millions of seeds and they, they develop those those plants into larger and larger and larger trees and they yeah that they can provide trees and saplings and seeds or whatever is needed for for local restoration all around the world that's definitely not a limiting factor at the moment the limiting factor is just humans getting involved okay well very good well what's what's the best way for people to find out more uh you know about your your lab and your efforts and then uh you know look deeper from there it would be great if people visited visited uh, visited us on uh, crowdthelab.com and they can see all of the research that's informing all of these restoration efforts and hopefully they can you know through that they can find links to other restoration projects that we work with and hopefully it's a, a sort of source in a way into that network that can guide any of their best intentions well, that's great well thomas i really appreciate you coming on the podcast fantastic thank you so much for having me it was great to chat You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.